Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to turn now to David Garrity, the chief executive of GVA Research, to tell us about the world domination plans of Amazon. David, always a pleasure to have you. Thanks for being here. Um, I was just looking at the market cap of Amazon at nearly $480 billion, right? So $480 billion is the market cap for a company that did sales of about $140 billion. So we're talking about a four to one there. Net income, $2.5 billion. How does that work on an annual basis? you got a $480 billion valuation, and yet your net is $2.5 billion, and people just love you. Well, Pim, thanks for the setup on world domination. But the issue it is it goes into the competitive dynamics that Amazon under founder and CEO Jeff Bezos have followed since pretty much the beginning, which is the company is always focused on pricing as being the wedge that it is used to gain market share. And the company has always referred to the fact that they arguably have this flywheel, which at some point in time, when things slow down and margins start to improve, should lead to meaningful expansion on the bottom line. So the profit margin that you highlight is razor thin, uh, arguably has the potential to expand. And certainly, you know, here we are a week on. Expand even though it can, some people have said that Amazon, you know, first built this business on the fact that they did not pay sales tax in the states to which they ship books. Very true. And in some respects, you know, this continues to the present day. So, yes, there's tax avoidance and arguably the pricing on that can be worked into what price it is that the consumers have to pay. But one might argue that as we've seen this business model develop and evolve and following the acquisition announcement a week ago, of the $13.4 billion being spent to acquire Whole Foods, I would really say Amazon's growth prospects boil down to two words right now. Alexa listens. And if we look at the Amazon Echo being implanted in the homes of a wider range of higher income households, while people may think, gosh, the Echo is wonderful. You know, I give a request, I get an answer. Well, it's not just a matter of depending upon interaction. It's the matter of listening and gathering further data. Wait, and so how can Amazon monetize that? Amazon arguably is going to monetize that. If we look at Whole Foods, where is Whole Foods located? Whole Foods is located in situations where it caters to high-income households. So it has to be in fairly close proximity to where these households are located. So not only has Amazon now just gotten a wider number of distribution points that are closer to their customers, they arguably at the same time have gathered a source of data which gives them greater depth in terms of understanding the range of products that consumers are buying. Complement that with the fact that, you know, if we go back over the last six to 12 months, Amazon had been rolling out the Echo. And we've had, you know, people have responded to this product favorably, but there are implications longer term where this integration on the part of Amazon is getting far closer to consumers such that it's now within the consumer's home passively gathering data. So I'm trying to understand, going back to something that you said earlier, uh, Amazon has proven really good at disintermediating some of the big behemoth retailers and uh, having more efficient systems also by squeezing out 
prices, by, by getting prices as low as possible, at what point will they be able to meaningfully increase prices to improve their margins? Well, you're starting to see some of that happen already. Um, you know, Amazon, over time, has started to introduce more of their own brand products and have been providing those to consumers. And consumers have appreciated Amazon very much because Amazon was convenient. You could shop on Amazon anytime you want, wherever you want it and Amazon would deliver. But in the process of the trade-off of this convenience, consumers aren't necessarily being perhaps as mindful. And it may not matter so much at the higher end income end of the distribution curve. Consumers are making a trade-off. They're not necessarily looking at the price that they're paying. They're not looking at the value because they're putting greater value in the convenience that Amazon can deliver. And there is documentation out there that says Amazon, with respect to their own brand products, changes the prices on a fairly rapid basis. And more often than not, you actually end up paying more for the Amazon-owned brand product than you do for a branded name product being provided by another vendor through the Amazon site. That's kind of an amazing situation, isn't it? This is yield management, which people have been accustomed to thinking of in the context of the airline industry, where you look at the manipulation around per-seat pricing. This is yield management going online and then with Alexa coming into your home. Talking about Alexa, maybe you can expand on this because if you go to the Alexa site, it is targeted towards businesses, not to individuals necessarily, and it's designed to give businesses what they call competitive analysis tools. And I'm wondering if you could speak about that in the context of what Alexa is doing because, boy, if you're offering web, website traffic statistics plus an audience overlap, that's kind of a sophisticated piece of information for companies that don't have to host the technology. Well, it's really a byproduct of what it is that Amazon is doing. And and Amazon in the process of doing that is obviously trying to monetize what it's already gathering for itself. Some people have been making a case, you know, in fairly significant publications, um, that Amazon is now acquiring the role that railroads used to play back in the late 19th century when railroads essentially determined what traffic crossed their rails and what was the price at which this traffic crossed its rails. So one might argue that as historically we looked at Amazon as being a disruptor, you know, Amazon now as the intermediary is gaining substantial economic power. And the question here might have to be argued as we look at the Whole Foods acquisition, you know, will the regulators decide to intervene because of this greater influence that Amazon has? And the other question is, will regulators start to be concerned about some of the privacy issues that may be raised around the prospect of having Alexa sitting in the home, listening to what people are saying, and then anticipating what people want before they actually themselves consciously know that? Are consumers willing to give that much away of themselves to get this convenience that Amazon has historically provided? This is fascinating. You know, I hadn't realized that Amazon branded products were actually charging more than what you could get for other brands that are sold through Amazon's network. Fascinating, uh, fascinating talk. David Garrity, Chief Executive Officer of GVA Research. Also, he's a columnist at Investopedia, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Looking very summary. Always wonderful to see you, David.
Well, there was a Leg Mason survey that came out earlier today that showed that income investors are seeking an overall rate of return of about 8.64%, which seems difficult to get at a time when junk bond yields are a little over 5%. Uh, Here to put some perspective on that, I want to bring in Alan McKnight, Chief Investment Officer uh, in the Wealth Management Division of Regions Bank, which oversees about $81 billion. Alan joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Have you found in your talking with fund managers and clients that people have unrealistic expectations of what kinds of returns they could possibly get? We think so. We think the biggest issue is that people want to look on a historical basis as to what they should expect in the future. And if you look at the long-term returns and use a very simplified 10% for stocks, 5% for bonds, you get to this magic equilibrium of 8%. Well, the reality is if we believe that expected returns in stocks will be closer to 7 and bonds will be closer to 2 suddenly you're looking at closer to 5 5.5% versus this magic 8. Hold on a second. Two, you're talking about a blended uh, group of fixed income that includes corporate and uh, government debt. Is that right? Exactly. And we just think given where we are on the curve and what we've already seen with the benefits to high-yield investment-grade corporate bonds, that it, it seems less likely to us that we'll generate the types of returns in fixed income as we have. So a total return kind of bond uh, return of about 2% by year end, that means that we see some losses before year end. And that, that probably includes some uh, increases in benchmark yields, correct? That's that's correct. So where do you see it going, the benchmark 10-year, for example? Yeah, so we think the 10-year will continue to go higher. But what we've seen so far is what we think is indicative of the future, which is one of we're seeing the back end of the curve come down. We're seeing the short end of the curve go up. We've seen this flattening effect until such time that we see some implementable ideas from Washington and some real change associated. It's hard for us to envision a scenario where the entire curve shifts up dramatically and the 10 makes any greater move than, say, to 2.6 or 2.7 by year end. At what point do asset prices, whether they be bonds or equities, get to the point where you say, let's keep something in cash, let's deploy capital in a neutral position because we feel that, well, we've made enough money looking at the S&P 500, it's up 9% this year. So our thought on that is that you have to continue to rebalance the portfolio and rebalance to the underperforming asset classes. And rather than going solely to cash, we think that there are better uses of funds. And certainly if you look over the long term, there should be a correction of about 10% every year if you go back to 1900 and approximately 20% every three years, just looking at the statistical data. So our perspective is if you can be a long-term investor, you shouldn't try to get in and out just as that's about to occur. Instead, ride through it and rebalance to find those underperforming asset classes and opportunities, such as what we've seen last year in international developed markets as well as emerging markets, rather than going to cash, reallocate that capital out to some some cheaper assets, if you will. So when you talk to clients and you say, you know, you guys may be expecting 8.6% total returns for this year, that's not going to happen. You're going to get 5.5%. Do they just say, Okay. Or do they say, can you make that happen, please? It's a great question. And it's a real challenge because I think most investors would say, that's what I need. So when you think about what's what's required versus what's possible, we would say what's possible is closer to the 7% range. But what's required is much higher. But with po- what's possible is not possible without taking a lot of risk and being lucky, right? I mean, how is it possible to get 7% risk without potentially losing your shirt? Well, that's, that's exactly I mean, the, the, the difference is around long-term versus short-term. In the very short-term, we don't believe that you're going to get 
let's say, through the end of the year. What we believe is over the next five to 10 years, you should be able to deliver that. And more importantly, if you talk to clients, it should be about what is your timeline? What are your liquidity needs? And how much risk are you willing to take to, to go down that path? And that's where we see the greatest disconnect for clients who want something. They want to be able to do certain things. But then when you start to back into the data around it and the numbers, it's this aha moment of, well, I need to save more. I need to allocate more capital to this. Or if I'm reaching for risk or yield, then I should assume I'm going to have more volatility. And that's a difficult concept for many folks to think that they just want the return without all the risk. What are you hearing from your uh, your base of, of salespeople and, and managers? What of those, let's say, reactions that you hear from investors, what's the most common one? Do they readjust their risk profile? Do they kid themselves into thinking, no, I'll worry about it later? Do they add more to savings? What's normally what they do? What we've seen thus far is that most want to wait, unfortunately. Most folks don't really want to have that difficult conversation. And in some cases, if it's an institutional investor, they don't have the luxury of that because it's set for them rather than them being able to actually discern what that true target rate might be. So denial, you're saying? Exactly. Okay. So, but if, that's if, always a good strategy, right? To <laughs> yeah, just deny no, that common. the issue exists, right? It's yeah. good. Good. I try to do that on a regular basis. But I, I'm just trying to think, though, you know, to get to that 7%, what would the allocation have to be, uh, you know, given some degree of volatility, perhaps more than some people are willing to stomach? What are people, what are you recommending people allocate to in an aggressive strategy uh, for a longer term horizon with uh, some ability to uh, have a liquid investments? Right. So we're allocating more to equities and more broadly to emerging markets, international development to where we think there's opportunity right now. We also allocate to small and mid-cap stocks because we think there's a higher return premium there, albeit there's a little bit more volatility, and it's decreasing our exposure to fixed income. Now, the trade-off for that is there's going to be more volatility in the portfolio, but we don't view volatility solely in a standard deviation. Okay, this is what the statistic means. It's how much can you stub it from an absolute value perspective and what that may mean for your portfolio. Does that mean that you're not pricing in any chance of a recession in the next few years? We don't anticipate a recession right now. We think that we're going to hover around 2 to 2.2% growth, but we need some implementation in D.C. to help that along. So right now you're still betting on the Trump up. We are. I want to press you just a little bit on this 7% idea because, you know, when someone says 7%, I go looking on my Bloomberg and I call up Royal Dutch Shell, right? This is a global oil. That's so PIM. I mean, of course. Like, <laughs> well, but I mean, it's... I was like, where are you going okay, with this? Okay, well, it's... It, Why not Royal Dutch Shell? Well, okay, Royal Dutch <laughs> Shell, and it's got a yield of over... 7%, albeit the stock is down nearly 8% this year. But if you're telling me that this is a long-term bet for whomever is the customer, then they're not going to necessarily worry about the capital appreciation, or are they? At what point does that become a denial conversation as well? Well, that, I think the big question for investors is around, do I chase yield in that case, where you have an underperforming asset because the energy business has, has been hit over the last really 18 months, but more um, recently in the last couple of months. And when you chase just absolute levels of yield, you're going to get hurt. What we would say is build a portfolio around equity income. And what's more important is the actual growth of yield rather than the absolute dollar value. Because if you go chasing that dollar value of yield, inevitably you're going to get hurt because it's the names that have already sold off. And unless you have a very long-term time perspective and you have a very clear indication of default risk and cash flow needs of that company, it can be a more challenging situation. Real quick, what's the most overvalued aspect of markets right now? We would say that probably the most overvalued would be marginally in the high yield space. 
just as it relates to where spreads are. They're so tight. Um, we haven't seen them this tight in quite a while. So that would be the place where we're still allocating to them, but we want to be on a conservative side and high quality within the high yield space. Well, you can't see it, but uh, Lisa is shaking her head because this is something <laughs> you've been it. noting I'm for a while. Yes, I love it. Noting I love the support. Any, any little bit Alan helps. McKnight, thanks very much. Chief Investment Officer, Wealth Management, Regions Bank, $81 billion under management. They're based in New Orleans. We did get the uh, health care bill out of the Senate yesterday. We at least uh, saw a version of it coming out of the GOP. And there were some scathing responses to it, including from Dr. Jonathan Gruber, an MIT professor of economics, uh, who said that the deal was, quote, amazingly bad. Dr. Gruber was also a key architect of Obamacare. And he joins us now. Dr. Gruber, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. We have a sense of where you may be coming from uh, with respect to your view on this proposal. I would love to get your sense of which provisions in the Senate bill are most important to watch and have the most potential impact going forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. And look, uh, I think it's very important to recognize we all come into the view, but the facts speak clearly, which is Literally, if you ask Republican senators what this bill accomplishes, they don't have an answer for you other than, well, it repeals Obamacare, which it doesn't do. I mean, this is literally taking Obamacare and just making it worse. Well, hold on a second. Wait, hold on one second, Dr. Gruber, because I think that somebody might say, well, honestly, it lowers the cost. And if it lowers the cost, that uh, goes forward uh, and and helps the uh, overall budget of the U.S. Ah, okay. Well, let's be clear. So let's separate key terms. It does not lower the cost of health care. It does not lower health premiums. It so it does lower government spending on health care, but it doesn't lower the deficit. It just goes into tax cuts for the rich. So we're talking about the largest social insurance rollback in our nation's history. And the total reduction of the deficit will be maybe ten billion a year, which is like one percent. Okay? So or two or three percent. So, like, who cares? So, basically, my point is I don't understand the point of this whole bill. And this isn't about the fact I like Obamacare. This is literally a question. What does this bill accomplish? It doesn't lower the deficit. It doesn't lower premiums. It doesn't lower health care spending. It does create more uninsured. It does mean that the sick and low-income have to pay much more for their health care. I just don't know what the point of it is. All right. Having said that, Dr. Gruber, you, as someone that I'm sure is as well steeped in the political world now as you are in uh, the world of economics and and healthcare, because you have a, a pedigree that you know you were director of healthcare program at the National Bureau of Economic Research and and so on, you know, very distinguished. Uh, can you be a little bit uh, perhaps more political and explain to everybody what do you really believe is going on and what is the ultimate purpose? So basically. Honestly, from a standard political economy perspective, I can't explain what's going on. Because if you said to me, will, the, will an administration and a Congress pass a bill which literally makes 97% of Americans, you know, makes 2% of Americans better off and probably 15% of Americans worse off, uh, I would have said you can't do that because that's just politically impossible. So honestly, I can't explain the politics of this well, other than Republicans just feel that they need to please their base, that they promise their base they do something about Obamacare, 
They're going to label this repeal of Obamacare, although, as I said yesterday, it's sort of a half repeal of Obamacare plus a massive Medicaid cut. So it's really – it's a weird bill because it's not a repeal of Obamacare. Well, okay, it is Obamacare light. It's literally just a scaling back of Obamacare. You, you don't like Obamacare tax credits? Well, all they do is make them smaller. You don't like Obamacare regulations? They make them a little bit weaker. You don't like Obamacare pieces? They just make them smaller. Well, Plus, they add a massive cut in Medicaid above and beyond what Obama did to expand Medicaid, and they used to pay for a tax cut for the rich. Well, hold so on honestly, a I don't understand the politics. So, Dr. Gruber, one, uh, one thing that a lot of Republicans are saying is, look, Obamacare, uh, the costs, the premiums are poised to go up rapidly in the upcoming years, you know, to quote uh, President Trump that Obamacare is, quote, broken. Uh, so clearly there is a lot of concern going forward about the uh, potential for Obamacare to continue providing some of the care uh, that it already has. So, mm. I mean, how would you respond to to that? To basically say this is an attempt to at least lower costs and, and ameliorate some of the uh, uh, some of the aspects of Obamacare that haven't yet even been observed. So, the way I would respond to that is to is to explain the facts. First of all, we're not talking about the vast majority of Americans. Neither Obamacare nor this law affects you if you have employer-sponsored insurance. This law makes your life a little bit worse because it, re- it allows employers to put lifetime limits back, so it sort of violates the Jimmy Kimmer rule, if you will. But other than that, it doesn't much affect your employer-sponsored insurance. We're talking about the minority of people who buy insurance in the individual market. All this law will do is c- destroy that market. Now, it's true that market doesn't work that well for many people, um, and that's a shame, and we should address that, and we could address that. But it's sort of like saying we've got a market that Obamacare created that's not working as well we would have liked, so let's just destroy it. But it doesn't replace it. It doesn't fix it. Nothing still makes it better. Now, if you say you don't like Obamacare, that's fine. Let's fix it. I disagree. I think Obamacare is working better than people say. I'm happy to get into that. But, you know, I know listeners might not agree with me on that. That's fine. What I want listeners to ask is, what does this law do to make it better? Absolutely nothing. And that's the key thing. It's basically, you know, Reigns Priebus said we have, a, we have a bipolar choice, either Obamacare or this law. That's just wrong. They're using the political hatred of Obamacare to cover up something which is a fundamental attack on the U.S. healthcare system. It doesn't make anything better. We're going to leave it there. Thank you very much. Dr. Jonathan Gruber is economic professor of MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and uh, he was uh, previously the director of healthcare program at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and uh, also he was a key architect of both the uh, 20... Uh, 2006, rather, uh, Massachusetts uh, health care reform bill. That was uh, sometimes referred to as Romney care. Well, you know, the railroad industry uh, has been beset by technological as well as economic challenges. And Thomas Black, our industrial and aerospace reporter for Bloomberg News, joins us now from our Dallas bureau to help us understand about the ongoing revolution in the railroad industry. And uh, Thomas, first of all, thank you for being with us. And maybe you could introduce who is Hunter Harrison and why is it that if I go to Amazon, I find that the book that he wrote is out of print and no longer available, but everybody wants it. Thanks, Tim, Lisa, for having me on. Hunter Harrison is a railroading legend. He's, um, he would be in the Hall of Fame if they had one for, for the industry. He's uh, turned around 
three railroads, and he's on his fourth. And it looks like he's um, he's going to come out a winner on this one as well. The, the early indications show. Uh, and his book that he wrote while he was at uh, Canadian National is um, is something that most railroad folks have read. It's hard to get because it was it was an in-house um, print of a um, a book he wrote while at at CN. So it's it's hard to find, and um, it's certainly people in the industry know all about it, and most have read it. How We Work and Why, Running a Precision Railroad. That's the title. Tell us how he's running CSX now. It's all about moving cars uh, faster, and he t- tends to to go in and shake things up to, to do that, and sometimes uh, turning logic perhaps on his head. And one of those examples is the the hump yard that we talk about in the, in the story. It's a um, it's an operation that's super efficient if you have large volume of railroad cars. You got to tell people what is a hump yard, how is it used, and just give okay. us that background. It, it's called a hump yard because they, they actually build a little hill where they, they push a train up the hill. And as it just crests at the top, there's a, a worker who unhooks the car and then gravity uh, pulls it down the hill, and it's uh, automatically switched among uh, about 40 rail lines, um, and it builds trains that way for a common destination. And so they, they're, they're basically switching uh, rail cars one by one through this mechanism. And it's, again, very efficient if you have 1,000 or 1,500 cars being switched every day. Um, the key is is that they they're switching them one by one. So what Hunter does is he says, why do we have to have all that volume go into this hump yard at, at the at the beginning when we're forming the train back up the line? Uh, let's put these cars together in a common destination in blocks. Yeah. And that way we don't have to go through these yards and switch them again one by one. We'll just use the locomotives themselves to push these blocks around and create trains that way. Right. And so what they found is that they, they can just skip this, uh, this uh, operation, which is highly efficient, by not sending so much volume to there. So he, he's been able to, to shut down half of their hump yards, and it creates um, efficiencies, not, not only from the workers and all the expense of operating a hump yard, but also by not jamming cars into these different rail yards and slowing down the process. He's bypassing these rail, ra- right. rail yards altogether. You know, Thomas, just to put this into perspective, so Hunter Harris took the helm of CSX in January, and since then, the shares have risen 43%, kind of shocking uh, as far as a gain for a company that is not Amazon or Facebook or one of the fangs. Uh, just to put this in perspective, uh, the U.S. freight rail network is a $60 billion industry, including uh, 140,000 rail miles. And, you know, at a time when there's so much focus on autonomous truck driving and infrastructure spending, I'm just wondering, uh, what's the what's the road forward just generally for rail companies uh, that are looking to modernize, they're you know thought of as a pretty pretty old technology. What, what's sort of the future here? The uh, well, it's interesting that the railroads actually have a lot of technology. They're using pretty sophisticated computer models to to manage their networks now. They have uh, sensors throughout their uh, their tracks to monitor the track health, 
the um, the health of the cars themselves. Uh, some railroads are exper- experimenting with the large X-ray type machines that the the that would be uh, basically over the tracks, and cars would go through there, and they'd be able to to check their their rail cars automatically to see if maybe an axle needs to be re- be replaced or a wheel or brake needs to be replaced. So they are using new technology, um, but it's 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 hard to see because it is an industry that, like you said, that is uh, fairly old and, and the concept hasn't changed, right? You still have locomotives and you have cars that they're pulling. Uh, last point to you, uh, Thomas. You know, when you look at all this, uh, the, the movement of all this goods, how's the railroad industry doing in the United States, particularly CSX? Give you about 20 seconds. The railroad industry, it's doing well. They've had difficulties because coal has uh, coal demand has dropped, but they're coming to terms with that, and they're starting to see volume growth, and they're much more efficient than they ever have been. And in fact, all of the the capital that they've spent on the the rails since they've been deregulated in 1980 has put the the rail system really in it's probably the it's it's best condition ever, is what I'm being told. Thomas Black, thank you so much for joining us. A truly fascinating story. Thomas Black is the industrial and aerospace reporter for Bloomberg News, coming to us uh, from our Dallas bureau, talking about CSX. Honestly, I am just shocked, Pim. 43% gain in one year for a relatively old technology. Fascinating times. I'm Lisa Abramowitz with Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.